You're listening to the Manchester Vineyard Podcast. We'd love for you to join us. To discover more about who we are, where we meet, and how you can connect with us, head to manchestervineyard.org or follow the link in the podcast description. Like, it's a bit weird. I feel like I should congratulate you for being here. I feel, um, just chatting with numerous people, it feels like COVID has been rampant this week. Um, sweets are coming back, FYI. Um, we've, we've missed them dearly, haven't we? Um, it felt like the wrong week, you know? <laughs> oh my gosh, there's more people online than in the room. But um, you're going to be delighted you're here and you're going to be delighted you're joining us online because this week I'm going to be speaking on suffering well. Yay! Yeah, it's like great. Can um, I also just want to apologise? I think um, even for my style today, I just feel this one. There's, there's something going on here, but we'll see where we go. But anyway, I'm doing this series in um, Corinthians. We aren't going verse by verse or chapter by chapter. We're kind of skimming along and then dipping in at certain points, doing a slightly deeper dive. And today uh, we're going to flip into 2 Corinthians and look at chapter 1. If you dip in and out of what I'm saying, um, if there were to be a take-home this week, I want to say it's this. I desperately, desperately long for you to have spiritual eyes. That's kind of the context of where I'm trying to go with this. We have to see spiritually rather than physically or circumstantially. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, For we live by believing, not by seeing. That's kind of our heritage. And I want to tell you this little story this morning. And um, I want you to know, I I try to be quite measured about these things, I think it's really important that I am. I think it's important that you have a trust in me and you don't think I'm wild and I've lost it. Equally, sometimes I read the Bible and I see a lot of the characters in there and I'm like, hmm. I I don't know if you've ever seen that. Like, a lot of them are actually quite wild and eccentric. And uh, so the story I'm going to tell you today actually isn't that wild in comparison to some of those stories. I just think we often see through a natural lens rather than the spiritual lens. And if we see through the spiritual lens, it alters the way we see things. And uh, we need to see through the spiritual. And alongside that, the more we're known, the more we can be grown. And that's kind of the context of the series, the basis of this series I've called Known to be Grown. And uh, before I jump into the story, let me just refresh your memory on a few of the ones in the Bible, just to give context, just to kind of offset it a little bit. So John the Baptist, Matthew 3, verse 4, it says this, John, John's clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist for food. He ate locusts and wild honey. His ministry was totally different to anything else of this day, let alone that day, and yet the crowds flocked to hear him and to be baptised in water. Noah certainly was eccentric. Genesis 6, Hebrews 11, he built an ark at a time when the rain was not known on the earth. Abraham was, Hebrews 11, he went out by faith, taking his wife and a number of others with him, not knowing where he was going. Sarah was, Hebrews 11, she believed in a promise from God that was an impossibility, and yet it happened anyway. At the age of 90, she became a mother. Joshua was, he believed that the walls of Jericho would fall down, Joshua 6, and that the sun would stand still if he spoke to it, Joshua 10. He did, and it did. Gideon was... Judges 6, especially with regards to the fleece that many of us would know about, and God cooperated with him. Samson was, he tore a young young lion up 
into pieces like it was a rotten rag, Joshua 14. He caught 300 foxes, tied them tail to tail, and set fire to their tails and let them run through a cornfield of the Philistines, Judges 15. He slew a 1,000 men with the jawbone of an ass, Judges 15. I mean, how unconventional can you be? He carried the doors of the gates of Gaza on his shoulder and trotted up to the top of the hill, Judges 16. David was. He went against the Philistine giant and champion Goliath just with a slingshot, 1 Samuel 17. Peter was, Matthew 14. He actually believed he could walk on water at the word of Jesus, and he did. And before you say, oh, yeah, but he started to sink, just remember the other disciples that felt led to play it safe and stand firmly in the boat. Peter's willing to have a go to be different while others just watched on. Paul was the guy who wrote... Corinthians, a quick overview of his life would tell us that he was quite eccentric. When he got beaten up and thrown into jail, he started singing at midnight in Acts 16. A violent mob tried to kill him. He stood and shared his testimony to them, Acts 21 and Acts 22. And there's some of the less crazy stories, just to keep us measured and give you the context of the story I will share today. I thought I'd actually probably just gloss over the thumbs and the toenails in Judges 1, not even to mention the 200 foreskins in 1 Samuel 18. <laughs> did I just mention that? I kind of did. But I don't know if you've ever read the book, because it's kind of all in there. And some of the stuff that happened in the natural with the human eye is actually quite hard to give language to it. But I think we need spiritualize, because not everything is going to sit naturally in the human with the natural frame of reference that we might have. So the story I'm going to tell you, actually I don't think is that wild at all, given the context of all of that, but when we have spiritualized, it unlocks something slightly bigger than we will ever see in the natural. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, for we live by believing, not by seeing. I want you to know I have full permission to share this story. In fact, these aren't my words, they were their words. Normally, um, when I tell a story, I always have permission, but I try and conceal the identity of the person. But for the full impact of this one, it's going to be virtually impossible. So I need you to know while she's not here this morning, and Danny and Abby are joining us online because they're isolating, this is about Abby. A number of you will know her fairly well. During lockdown, she was living alone, so actually lived with us for long periods. She's family to us, as you're known when somebody shares on this level of openness, that they put their hearts in your hands. So please, please, please be aware of that and be sensitive to that. I realise she's not here in person, but a number of you will be impacted by what she said. So this is her words rather than mine. She said, a quick background, when I was 23 and in a long-term relationship, very suddenly and unexpectedly, it ended. I had very little clarity over why, and it was followed by a year of back and forth between us, which ended when I discovered he was in another relationship. This caused me a huge amount of heartache and devastation as I came to terms with what I thought was my future and what it would be would now look very different. I went on a journey of pain and healing over the years. God was incredibly kind, and I slowly healed and moved on. I identify that it was such a blessing, looking back, that the relationship had ended. I did, however, have a lot of thought processing where I over-apologized for everything and worried a lot about what people thought of me, as well as withdrawing from things and opportunities, as I didn't think I was good enough. 
this wasn't like a heavy thought process. It was just kind of a constant in the background of how I thought it was. Fast forward seven years, here I am living in Manchester in a place of singleness that sometimes I was okay with and sometimes not. I began getting some incredibly serious headaches that ended up with me in A&E and subsequently being admitted to a ACU with what was su suspected as a brain bleed. This was a scary thing, and entering ACU ward alone was horrible, but I had some incredible friends who dropped everything to sit in A&E with me, and a friend who left holiday early to hold my hand through the lumbar punches, explaining what was happening whilst waiting for the results. I have an amazing dad who got straight on the train and travelled five hours to be there to pick me up and to take me home. CT scans and lumbar punches revealed, thankfully, there was no bleed, but it remained very unclear why my blood pressure and headaches were so bad. I was signed off work and the consultants wanted me to continue, as they wanted to continue to look into what it could be, they thought it may be severe tension headaches as a result of stress and I was given tablets for that. They were mild antidepressants and actually had quite a negative effect and I ended up being in a very low place. I ended up being signed off work for another two weeks. Under the advice of my GP, I came off all painkillers and was encouraged to get outside, avoid screens, and slowly my headaches eased. They never fully went, and although not as severe, sometimes they were bad and were an ongoing annoyance. This was all around the September to October. In November, I had this bit. This was actually in November 2019. Back to her words. She says, I went to Cause to Live For, and I got there in the evening of the first day. There was lots of mentions of headaches during ministry, and there was a call for people to respond to having ongoing headaches. I stood up to be prayed for, but there was no change, and it felt incredibly frustrating. I ended up speaking to Paul, who felt there could be something more spiritual at play, but wanted somebody who didn't know me to, play with, to pray with us. Paul, you could explain this bit a lot better. I possibly now could, but I'm not going to because of time. She goes on to say, we prayed and with Chad, the guy who was speaking at the conference, and Steph joined us, and that gave me a sense of security, as she knows me well and knew my journey. Let me just potentially add in here, I would say for me in my life, this has been a really, really big deal. When I feel safe, when I'm with people that know me, when I'm known, I'm often grown because I'm open to something of the Lord, because I stand or sit around people who I know are for me, and it brings something of the natural to something of the new supernatural. Anyway, I go on. She says, Chad explained that often headaches can be the result of unforgiveness. I remember thinking, well, I don't have anyone to forgive. And he said, is there anyone you need to forgive? And I thought, hmm, at a push, I guess, my ex-boyfriend. But inside, I'm thinking, not really. That was a long time ago, and I've forgiven him. He asked me why, and then without even thinking, I immediately said, because he made me feel so unworthy, and it flowed into every aspect of my life. I'd never actually thought about it that way, so knew it must be something of the Holy Spirit. At that moment, there was such a rush of the Spirit, and I was quite overwhelmed. This was something I'd never really thought and hadn't realized that I felt that way. 
it was very powerful as the three of them played for me and I had an incredible encounter with the Lord. It was quite overwhelming. Chad made me speak out some truths like, I am worthy, I'm a daughter of the king, etc. And as I started to really physically to struggle to say them, honestly, it felt like a battle. As I finally said them and said them with meaning, I had such a surge of an intense headache. Again, the three continued to pray and lead me through it. Afterwards, Chad explained that he had a sense in the moment of my breakup and in that time of brokenness that the enemy got in with a lie that I was unworthy. He explained that it was as if the enemy had set up his desk and occupied an area of my brain for the next seven years and he'd just become comfy there. And as the Lord was inviting me into the most, sorry, into more, there was a battle over that space, hence the headaches. It was quite profound and significant and there was a substantial releasing, healing and shift for me, which was amazing. And quite an instant change in my headaches, which have never come back as bad or in that way since and in my thought processes. Since then, it's like God has been mopping up at the edges slightly. I've still had to choose to push and press into more of God and wanted to do that. And I've noticed that as he removes more and releases more, there is still more to do. It's actually um, such a precious thing as he doesn't leave us where we are. He, he moves us to where he wants us to be totally free. The whole journey which is continuing has taught me a lot, but definitely that we have to choose to deal with the stuff. I could have easily not pushed it. I, sorry, I could have easily not. I could have pushed it down and tried to press on, but it's identifying it's not okay, I think that. And that there is something more to this physical thing and seeking God in that. In order to do that, I think it's so important that you're known. I know I wouldn't have been able to had I have had that encounter if it wasn't for close friends who knew me and identified there was more at play, prayed with me and also had a depth of wisdom and discernment to discern the call and to call out what was going on. Being prayed for like that also takes a degree of vulnerability and having someone there who totally knew me could hold my hand and gave me a sense of safety to push in. Also, when I prayed for, I remembered having a moment where I thought, is this right? This feels a bit wild. And Steph Brain, who had walked with me so closely since the breakup and also had a discernment of the spirit that was able to encourage me that, yes, this is the right thing. She was there to walk with me afterwards and to celebrate what God has done whilst encouraging me to press into more. And that is so important. A couple of things. Firstly, Abby, I know you're not here, but thank you for your vulnerability. I think we can learn an incredible amount. Secondly, I always try and conceal it, who it is, and I also try and conceal that we were involved, but it's hard to do. But that is a powerful story. And I want to encourage us today to have spiritual eyes. If you remember nothing else this morning, that's where I want to go with this. Paul's relationship with the Corinthian church spans about a seven-year period, and he spent about a year and a half in Corinth establishing the church. And of all the churches that Paul founded, it was actually the church at Corinth that proved to be the most demanding. There was something, I think, really fascinating in that. 
I've said it a few times that I think there's parallels between Corinth and Manchester, and this feels like another one of them. I often chat with some of the other church leaders in this city, some of them who have been here for 30, 35, 40 years, and they all say that this is a spiritually tough ground. It doesn't seem to be the same, not trying to make it worse or overplay it, but in comparison to some other cities in the UK, this is quite a different, unique place. I won't go into the details of it, but I'd say in the last five years, I identify that and I can see that. It resonates. Some of what I've seen with other churches and this church and the dynamic of it and some of the spiritual dynamics at play. I think that's one that I'd encourage you to pray into. We are in a battle and we're in a fight. But let me just jump into 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Let me start at verse 3 because it says this. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort do you know the best thing about this god is the father of compassion which means he is compassionate he is the source of compassion he's the god of all comfort and he's the source of comfort isaiah 40 verse 1 god speaks this over isaiah he says comfort comfort my people says your god isaiah 66 verse 13 i will comfort you there in jerusalem as a mother comforts her child the god we find in the bible has knowable qualities we can know god the god of all comfort can comfort us i kind of feel like we could stop there wrap up and go home job done all is well in the world if we actually understand the reality of that if you need comfort you're in the right place if you don't need comfort i don't believe you because we will all suffer and we've got to learn to suffer well and to do that we're going to need to know the god of all comfort if god is the source of mercy and comfort jesus is the channel through whom these things come to us it's through jesus that we find comfort. I was thinking about listing off a few things that you might need comfort for or from. And I realized I don't, I don't think it's even possible to do that. I think that list is actually endless. You know, and I know, I need and you need comfort. So today afresh, will we press into renewed purpose and enthusiasm as we seek the compassion and the comfort that we find in the name of Jesus? You know, when we do ministry today, I was going to say this at the end, but I might as well say it now. I think if you're under the age of, let me just make it easier so I don't miss anyone. If you're under the age of 110, I think you need the Lord to comfort you. And if you've made it beyond that age, you still do, but well done. But ultimately, you know, we find comfort in Jesus. I just want to celebrate Abby's story, first and foremost, because she found comfort in Jesus. We try and find it in other places, but we have to find it in Jesus. Verse 4, he comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we'll be able to give them the same comfort that God has given us. So hang, hang on a minute. He comforts us in our troubles and he gives us something to give to others. And the thing he's given us and the thing that he's given us to give to others is Jesus. See, we don't, we don't give ourselves, we give Jesus. It's not a depleting of our reserves, it's a giving of him. It's a stewarding and a reflecting of something of the Almighty. Man alive, that's kind of like when, when we pray for people and they cry initially, we're always like, don't rush in with the tissues. 
don't bring a human thing. It's not that we don't care, but I'm like, let the Lord do it. You don't need me, you need him. We want people to meet with God, not with our humanness. Honestly, we don't need each other. We need him. Now, I'm not saying we don't need each other. Of course we need each other. But do you see what I mean? Because God is a father and he created us to be in family and he designed us to interrelate and he places the lonely in family and he's a father to the fatherless. So often when we have a problem, we think we need somebody else to sort it. Or we blame them for not sorting it. You weren't there for me. You don't understand. You've never been through what I've been through. I know. Maybe not. But you didn't need me anyway. We don't look to each other. Yes, we do. But we don't really ultimately look to each other. We look to Jesus. He is the source. He's the father of comfort and of compassion. He comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort for God has given it to us. So even if we have been through some similar things that people might identify with, they still don't need me. They need him. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort that God has given us. What, what is that comfort? Well, that comfort is Jesus. We comfort anybody in trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from Jesus. I guess the first question really to ask yourselves is this. Have you received that comfort? One, so that you can have it. Two, so that you can give it. That's kind of the crucial thing. You can't serve what you're not cooking. I've said that multiple times. It's so easy to comfort ourselves with loads of other stuff and trying to, to mask the need. When you need comfort, what do you go for? Holidays, buying stuff, eating, hobbies, all that stuff. That isn't the comfort of God. That's stuff that might try and mask over it or cover it. God's comfort isn't supposed to land on us and end with us, end of the line. It's supposed to flow through us and to be given to others. So to give that level of comfort to others really means we need to know it and to have received it ourselves. You see, the intimacy of relationships in and between those in the New Testament, I think is a really, really striking thing. The members of that group, that community, the formation of that church, they knew each other and therefore were able to give and receive comfort. In modern day churches, I would say we are wrestling for this thing. In a highly, highly transient city, such as Corinth, or we could say Manchester, when interconnectedness is absolutely savaged by the pandemic, we've got to fight for this. You can't program this. You can't have an event or a training course that's going to deliver it. You can't manufacture this thing. This comes through, first, through giving ourselves to Jesus, and secondly, spending ourselves on each other. How do we comfort each other well clearly we need to care about others and we need to be sensitive to their feelings and to their emotions romans 12 verse 15 be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep live in harmony with each other we share in the good times and we share in the hard times and he tags on the end of that not just the happy with those that are happy and weep with those that weep but live in harmony with each other. Why does he chuck that on the end of that sentence? Because we are so good in the natural at tripping over each other. And that is an inhibitor and a limiter to caring for each other. We aren't going to care 
for someone, if we're squabbling with them, if we're comparing, if we're jealous of them or about them, or feeling that we haven't had our need met or whatever it might be. There's something fascinating, in the, in, I guess, in the overall of the book, but in this particular letter, that power and weakness are a real theme. We suffer the weakness of troubles, and yet we find the power of God in his mercy and in his comfort. Although our sense of trouble and weakness may be great, the power of God is always greater. There's a real danger today that some will try and offer immediate health and prosperity and, and being due to us, owed to us by God. It's such a dangerous trap and it seems to work so well for a culture that is desperate for immediacy and, inter- and instant gratification. And yet Paul reflects those sufferings and he promises not immediate healing or success, but the comfort of God, which you will experience if you patiently endure. That's what this passage talks about. If you read it today, this afternoon, I'd encourage you. It's patiently enduring. It's suffering well. Sometimes we're just going to have to endure, patiently endure, but we do so with the backdrop of having spiritual eyes. It says this, verse 6 and 7, then you can patiently endure the same things we suffer. We are confident that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in the comfort God gives us. Wow. Now, the, the, the suffering and the troubles that I've talked about to some of you at numerous points in your life could seem incredibly heavy. Can I just read on? Because it says verse 8 and 9. We think you ought to know, dear brothers and sisters, about the trouble we went through in the province of Asia. We were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure. And we thought we would never live through it. In fact, we expected to die. He's talking about some stuff he's experienced in Ephesus and how God has delivered him. And I've heard those who have walked through periods of, of depression actually use very similar language. I'm not trying to say it's only that, but sometimes just been weighed down and crushed. Almost that imagery that he uses there, I think, has a modern psychological ring to it. But he goes on to say, beyond our ability to endure, it's literally something beyond your, your human power to cope with. You could reframe it and you could say this. We were indescribably beyond our limits of our own power brought down into the absolute depths. Now, I'm quite intentionally digging into that a bit and I want to consider Paul's state of mind and in writing so graphically because Paul uses, I think, those three phrases again at later points not only in this chapter, but further on in 2 Corinthians. Because you could say that the imagery of power, weight, and being indescribable, he uses again, but he flips them round and turns them upside down. And he indicates the all-surpassing power of God, the indescribable glory of God, and the power of Jesus made perfect in weakness. That's all to come in the following chapters, but it's suffering well with spiritual eyes. You see, Paul, was it, he was in a difficult place. He was in a bad place. He says, verse 9, in fact, we expected to die. 
and yet the weakness turns to strength. He says, as a result, we stop relying on ourselves and learn to rely only on God who raises the dead. And he did rescue us from mortal danger and he will rescue us again. We've placed our confidence in him and he will continue to rescue us. See, in the sentence of death that he's received, it caused him to rely on God. He placed his hope in God. The ordeal that he's faced in Asia, whatever specifics that was, seemed to be a weight carried by him that endured with him, the memory and the scarring and the pain of it, and yet it had activated an ongoing reliance on God and a hope in God. Now that, I think, is absolutely crucial. Some of you will go through stuff, some of you are going through stuff, and it's hard, it will be horrible, it's draining, it's all-consuming, and you wish it had never been that way. For Paul, how he went through it, and it wasn't that the pain or the concept or the idea of it suddenly vanished. It's that he reframed it, was able to learn from it, and now there's a deeper trust in God. He's not become battle-weary or scarred or resentful. He's become empowered and emboldened. Through the experience of utter helplessness, Paul has come to a new appreciation and understanding of the power of God who raises people from the dead. Now, here's, here's kind of the problem in how all of that relates to us now, because it's kind of very easy to regard this God as a remote God and a distant God from our present situation and circumstances, to think of him as a God of theology rather than a God of reality. Now, we can't just rely on the God of yesterday and the God of tomorrow. We've got to develop a growing confidence and understanding of the God of today. If not, how will we have access to the God of comfort who will comfort not only us, but allow us to steward that comfort to others? We can't shrink back from our troubles and challenges and hardships. We must allow ourselves to be drawn into a deeper confidence that God will comfort us and God will sustain us. Now, it's easy sometimes, I think, to want to bypass challenges, to get them done, get them out of the way, to go around them. It can be easy to be rocked, and it can be easy to be wobbled by them. But Paul is saying that his experience in Asia was able to make him more reliant on God, and that showed that the power reached even into what at times was evil circumstances, and it drew Paul into a deeper relationship with God. See, this, I love this stuff because this is really the kingdom stuff. And we're kingdom people and we hold the tension. And the tension at times can be hard, but we have a theology of both pain and suffering, but also breakthrough and breaking in. Whilst there's pain and suffering on the one hand, also on the other hand, the kingdom can break in and we see remarkable breakthrough. And we cannot be people that step back from believing that. Not always because we see it, but because that's what he said and because we trust him and we believe in him. See, God has delivered us. God will deliver us. And there's an interim deliverance that can break in now, but there's an ultimate deliverance that will come ahead when Jesus returns. I think that's what we're seeing going on in verse 10. It says this, he did rescue us from the mortal danger and he will rescue us again. We've placed our confidence in him and he will continue to rescue us. This really, I'd say, is standard vineyard language i'm not trying to claim it as the vineyard i think it's standard jesus language but it's kind of it's the now and the not yet 
We've got to be pressing in for the breaking in of the kingdom, relentlessly in faith, longing, praying and believing, equally remembering and knowing that the backdrop is in this life, it will be partial. At times, people may not or may only partially recover from illness, but we can't sidestep the fact that our final enemy is death. Sorry to be morbid about it, but the reality is, actually, I don't believe what I just said. We can sidestep it because Jesus holds the power over death. The enemy is defeated, and we long to see the power of that breaking into the now. We are linked to the sorrow and the suffering of this world, but it will pass. 1 Corinthians 7:31. Those who use the things of this world should not become attached to them, for this world will pass. Sorry, this world as we know it will soon pass away. Ultimate deliverance, ultimate hope. Verse 11, we place our confidence in him and he will continue to rescue us. And you are helping us by praying for us. Then many people will give thanks because God has graciously answered so many prayers for our safety. Honestly, I think there's, there's a number, but one of the tactics that the enemy uses nowadays is to blind us to the power of prayer. Honestly, I think he waters it down. We're blinded by technology and our sense of power. And with regard to prayer and thanksgiving, we see it sometimes as weak or useless or someone was scoff or, or laugh it off. The reality is we're at the mercy of social, political and economic forces. And that's what's going on for Paul and his helplessness in the face of strong forces led him to experience, and doubtless I would say through the power of prayer, the power of God to deliver him. So why is, why is all of this a big deal? I think it's a big deal in a number of ways. But if you're facing some stuff, or have faced some stuff, or I tell you what, you will face some stuff, where you need comfort with an ongoing health challenge, or family dynamic, or an employment issue, or a marriage tension, or longing or have a hope that has yet been unmet or a loss, well, not only can you receive comfort for it, it's not just going to be enough for you, it will be enough for you to show and to share with others. And not only that, in the weakness of it and the helplessness of it, it could and should, to you in your weakness, reveal greater strength. Because rather than depend on yourself, it can cause you to rise up and find strength in God. In your weakness, you will actually tap into the power and the strength of God. Now, I, I want to suggest that for, for many, that's going to take a significant moment of realignment for you to grasp and to understand that. That may not have felt like a reality to you, but it's a truth to access and a truth to live in. And we have to have spiritual eyes. I don't want to be rude or punchy, but can I just stretch this a little bit far and give you another picture? Jesus said to the guy when he healed him, John 5 verse 8, he said this, Jesus told him, stand up, pick up your mat and walk. I always imagine how he said that. I don't know how he said that, but I think that's a pretty direct thing to say. Stand up, pick up your mat and walk. Instantly the man's healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat and began walking. Some of you will need to pick up your mat and start to walk. I'm not dismissing the place of pain or grief. I'm not even necessarily relating it to that. But sometimes in life, 
we can be in the place of resentment or we can resent where we are. We can go through troubles and suffering and it can push us into the place of being a victim or bitterness or doubt or to remaining locked in a pathway and chained to despair and chained to hopelessness or whatever it might be. And I'm not trying to claim a false healing. I'm not meaning we should name it or proclaim it. I'm not trying to dismiss that or belittle it. And I don't mean to shove it under the rug and pretend it's not a reality. But you can't shove it under the rug if you've picked up your mat and you're walking. Because what I mean is we have to learn to, to place and find our hope and our comfort in God and God alone, rather than even the thing that it is that we're facing. And sometimes... You may not realize it, but not only will you find comfort in it and through it and in that place, <clears throat> but where we feel crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure, and we thought we would never live through it. I read the text directly. In fact, we expected to die, but as a result, we stopped relying on ourselves and we learned to rely on God who raises the dead and he did rescue us from multiple danger, and he will rescue us again. We have placed our confidence in him, and he will continue to rescue us. See, our faith, our resolve, and our focus, and our purpose can grow and can be expanded, and in itself, that will lead you to a significant place, I believe, of breakthrough. Verse 31, it is God who enables us, along with you, to stand firm for Christ. He has commissioned us and he has identified us as his own by placing the Holy Spirit in our hearts as the first installment that guarantees everything he's promised. Now I call upon God as my witness and I'm telling the truth. The reason I didn't return to Corinth was to spare you from a severe rebuke. But that does not mean that we want to dominate you by telling you how to put your faith into practice. We want to work together so that you will be full of joy, for it is by faith that you stand firm. I feel this so deeply for you guys as a church. We want to work together so that you will be full of joy, for it is by your own faith that you stand firm. Would you have faith to stand firm? Would you find the joy of the Lord in the comfort of the Lord? Because your discipleship, you've got to own it. You can't land it on someone else. You've got to take active ownership of it yourselves. You've got to be known to be grown. But please, please, please partner with the Holy Spirit. It is God who enables us along with you to stand firm for Christ. It's him that does it. I don't rely on my own strength, on my own ability. I'm relying on him. It's him that does it in you and through you if you're willing. He goes on and he says he has commissioned us and identified us as his own by placing the Holy Spirit in our hearts as the first installment that guarantees everything he's promised. Through the Holy Spirit, God conveys to us the awareness that he's our father and we're his children. Man alive. Phenomenal. Romans 8.15, instead you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father. For his spirit joins with our spirit to, adjo- uh, to affirm that we are God's children. And since we're his children, we're his heirs. Has he done that in you? I want to say, let him do that to you. Let him tell you that you're his. I think we even we were singing that this morning. 
I hear you, I, I follow you in faith. Do you hear him tell you that you are his? Only through the Holy Spirit do I have that awareness and that confidence. That's where it's going to come from. Do we know, do you know that God is your father and he is good? We sang it again this morning. If I do, how then do I express the evidence of the Holy Spirit in my life and share that with others around us? That's kind of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. It is powerful stuff. Shall we stand? Hey, if you're if you're new in the room, we do this every week. We do it all the time, actually. We don't just do it on a Sunday. We just want to wait for the Lord to see what He wants to do. So sometimes I, we were just teaching our children again this week. Just stick your hands out like you're receiving a present. Sometimes helps because you are receiving a present. It's the present, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it helps close your eyes because you don't want to be distracted by the person around you. It's so easy now to whiz off to what's happening in the next 20 minutes. But what does the Lord want to do with you now? Father, we welcome you. I kind of joked about it earlier, but I honestly think this is... Surely it's for everyone every week, but man, we need the comfort of the Lord. So Holy Spirit, come now. Bring the comfort of the living God among us. Let's just wait a bit for him. Let's, let's just let it be him. Not anything or anyone else. Come Lord. He's breaking in now powerfully. Some of you it's a stillness, it's a quietness, it's a, it's a gentleness. Some of you... I, I want to encourage you, go with it, it's okay. If you can't cry before Jesus, where can you cry? Some of you, that it, your body's reacting in a physical way, again, it's okay. What I always know is you talk to people a week or two after and they say it's just something more of Jesus. Thanks for listening. To find out more, head to manchestervineyard.org or follow the link in the podcast description.